0: Welcome, hello. Hi, Hi. Shh, y'all. Um, I'm Alon Stevens. I'm um, a producer at KUT. I'm also one of Air's New Voices Scholars. So, so it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, it's a pleasure to introduce uh, today's speaker, Ann Hepperman, our moderator. Little-known fact about her is that she once made Ted dance and cry. I just let y'all think about that. Huh? So I'll just let y'all think about that while while she's moderating here.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, great. yeah, <clears throat> Fantastic. Welcome. I told Alon to keep it short and sweet because um, I kind of hate really long introductions at panels. I like to just like get right in. But there is a little bit of business that we're going to attend to before we go in. Welcome to Ayers... Um, Welcome. Where are we at? What are we at? Getting to yes—that's what it is. (laughs) The art of getting to yes, or as I call it, producers like to call it. I need money. Editors like to call it. Tell me what the fuck you're gonna do. So, um, so we're here at Third Coast. We're gonna pull back the curtain. You're gonna see some of the inner mysteries of the editorial process. Um, This session has been here at Third Coast for at least like nine years. The goal is to strengthen the pipeline between airs, rich network of talented producers, which you all are now a thousand strong um, and significant. You guys are significant broadcast and digital outlets. So over this hour, here's what's going to happen. Um, we're going to have three incredibly brave producers pitch three stories to these three editors. Uh, then we're going to have a death match, and we're going to see who makes it and then like, toss the losers like, out the window. So it's really high stakes um, this year at Third Coast. Um, so actually what we're going to do... You can laugh a little harder at my jokes. <laughs> just <laughs> This is being recorded. Um so it is a performance. It is in a way like it's unusual. It's like public torment um, for our benefit. Um, okay, thank you. So I just wanted to introduce our editors first, and by way of introduction, um, I'm going to ask them a que- I'm going to have them finish a sentence. So to my left, we have Bob Carlson from Unfiction- uh, yes, from Unfictional, and so I want you to answer the question when you pitch me always. Dot dot dot.
2: Uh, always give me a complete pitch. Be as detailed as you can. If you know the beginning, middle, and end of the story, uh, use that. Uh, give if you have some audio already, use that. And uh, it's you know the pitch is a sample of your writing, so make sure that it's it's well conceived and well written.
1: Okay, second sentence that I'm going to force you to complete when you pitch me never dot dot dot. Uh,
2: don't get discouraged. Uh, if you're turned down, pitch again. And uh, don't, you know, in in relation to the first thing I said, don't give me an incomplete pitch. <laughs> the worst thing <laughs> is when someone says sentences, like, they give me the beginning of the story, and they go, to find out the rest, email <laughs> me back. And it's like, no.
1: Trash. <laughs> delete. Yeah. All right, great. Thanks. All right, and to the left of Bob, we have Lita Hartman from Latino USA. Okay, so first, when you pitch me... Always, dot, dot, dot.
3: Okay, always tell me the basics of what we need to know about a story, Uh, the characters, the story arc, the scenes you envision, the sound you envision. Um, But more than that, tell me the gee whiz in it. Why is it relevant? Why is it unique? Why does it get you jazzed? Uh, What is there about it that everybody else would be interested in? The story. Um, And always check your pitch um, for flow, for writing style, because... How you pitch shows how you think and how you write and how you express ideas. So you want to kind of check that, too. Mm -hmm.
1: All right. And never. Um, When you pitch never, 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 never.
3: I really never have many nevers. (laughs) You guys are too nice. (laughs) But things that are not encouraged would include... a pitch that's written in a very dry academic authoritative style because in radio we want things that are ear friendly and mimic natural speech and so on so your pitch should sort of be along those lines too Um, never a half-baked pitch (laughs) which makes me think that the reporter hasn't really thought through their, their story idea too much um, and, you know, this could be because my father was an English professor And I just have, like, grammar police DNA in me or something But check your spelling, check your grammar That kind of stuff is important also um, So that's it Okay, great
1: All right, so to the left The far, far, far left We have Jamie York from Radio Lab. All right, Jamie, you're up When you pitch me, always dot, dot, dot
4: Always be excited about what you're pitching and have thought it through. I think it's really just that simple. I think there are a lot of things you can get past us on enthusiasm uh, and thoughtfulness. Really? I swear to God.
1: Okay. All right. I'm going to prod that. I'm going to prod that a little later when okay. we go into the session. Great. Um, okay. When you pitch me, never. Dot. Dot.
4: Dot. Never pitch me a study, never pitch me a topic, never pitch me a theme you've thought of uh, or something you've run into that is that general, that vague.
1: Mm. Okay. You probably get a lot of those. You probably get a lot of studies. A lot of studies. A lot of studies. All right. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and start. Um, We're going to start with Bob um, Carlson and Unfictional, and Debbie Nathan is going to pitch. But before um, we have Debbie come to the mic, I'm going to have every show talk about how the reason I'm doing this, so I'm going to back up into my brain and then, and then go. So the reason that I want them to tell you how they view the stories on their show and their show. Because a lot of times I think as producers and listeners, we have our own concept of what we think a show is. And then that show has a totally different um, sense of self. And so I think that's part of the reason why I'm asking you to describe what you think your, your show is and the kinds of stories that you accept. So, all right, on Unfictional.
2: Uh, well, Unfictional is a show from KCRW in, in Santa Monica, uh, broadcast and, and podcast. Uh, it's, a, a story, it's a program of stories that are generally narrative, generally first person, uh, per, you know, more or less highly produced. Uh, my ideal topics uh, are, might be a little bit pulpy, a little strange, uh, Things that have sort of a visceral appeal, like crimes, drugs, dreams, ghosts, death—all <laughs> the light the, topics. Yeah, you know, and you know that have some emotion. Um, some of the stories are, are produced in house, but uh, but the, one of the core purposes of the show is to be an outlet for independent radio producers, and so that's why I say generally this, generally that, because I get such a wide variety of people that that uh, do stuff for the show that the topics do. Uh, very widely, um, and, and the producers are sort of encouraged to, to highlight their own styles and their own way of working uh, rather than to be forced into a hardcore format, but we do work with producers to varying degrees, and it, the, they are, at a final stage, are turned into sort of the tone of the show. They want, we want it to follow somewhat of a tone to keep the show somewhat consistent, And it's 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 kind of a very informal and organic process. We are very small. It's only uh, me and uh, my part-time associate producer, Nick White, and so it's um, it's we very much work with the person in the way that that person likes to work or works well.
1: All right, all right. So first up, we have Debbie Nathan. And just so you know, the um, rules, the, uh, you have five minutes, and I will give you a um, one-minute one minute warning.
5: I think there are some ghosts in the story, maybe some historical ghosts. But I'm pitching a story about acceptance, um, about the pain suffered by a people from lack of sec- uh, acceptance and about some of that people seeking acceptance at any cost, even when it meant hurting another people and about a little small offering of apology, which may or may not be accepted. So I need to say that I'm Jewish, and um, when you come from a group whose major claim to fame is that we're different, religiously different, righteously different, social justice different, Passover, escape from Egypt, and slavery different, um, it can be kind of hard to explore the fact that sometimes your people have wanted so badly to be accepted that they haven't been very righteous at all. Um, four of my Jewish great-grandparents were, um, they came from Europe, but instead of going up north, like to New York City, they went to Mississippi. And one couple had a little country store, and um, years later, my southern great-great-cousin, who went north and never came back, wrote this novel in the 1930s about our family, and the novel says that one of my great-great-grandparents fought in the Confederacy during the Civil War, and... um, the family owned two slaves. When I was a kid, we had this kind of tattered copy of the book lying around and sometimes we'd have these family reunions and you know they'd bring it out and nobody believed that we had slaves. And I can remember nobody believed the Confederacy part either, but I can remember my father saying, Oh no, you know, that's a novel. That's fiction, that's not true. Well, two years ago, um, like a lot of middle-aged people, I joined (laughs) Ancestry.com. And um, you can look up all kinds of census and other documents. And very quickly, I learned that my great-great-grandfather did fight for the South, and the family did have two slaves. They had two females, a 23-year-old and a 13-year-old. And so, you know, immediately I'm starting to think, about some really dark things. I'm thinking about miscegenation. I'm thinking, what was my great great grandfather doing with those two female slaves? And did I now have cousins of color? So I typed my family's last name into ancestry. It's kind of a weird last name, it's C A R B. And sure enough, you know, all these black people popped up in the South in older censuses. And I kept on doing research, and I learned that Jews were um, a very tiny population in the antebellum South. They were maybe less than 30,000 out of um, 10 million um, people in the South. And they were only a tenth of the Jewish population in the whole country. But they were very happy in the South. They were actually treated much better. In the North, they were typically characterized as shifty money-grubbers, and in fact, the worst anti-Semites were the abolitionists. So, um, you know, in the South, they were very welcomed by other whites. And they and after the oppression of Europe, they really yearned for acceptance. And that meant owning slaves, just like everybody else. So, you know, today, these Southern Jews' descendants are all over America. I'm sure that there are many of them even at this conference. Um, I haven't found any other Jews, I've been working on this for two years, who have talked publicly. They've, like, examined their own family history. Um, I think that uh, my show would be the only, the first program publicly discussing this. And, you know, it's very scary to um, explore the history because the good research shows that Jews were involved with slavery in exact proportion to their very small numbers in the South. And that, you know, obviously is a problem. But for decades, everybody from David Duke to Farrakhan of the black Muslims has been um, accusing them of having been the big slave traders and slaveholders and the worst treaters of slaves. And the YouTubes are like, you know, there's videos all over YouTube. It's really pretty scary and this kind of anti-Semitism has really discouraged public discussion, frank discussion of this. So my piece would talk about my efforts to recruit my Southern Jewish family, including some very elderly ladies in the South, to this search for for black relations and, and... Ultimately, I didn't find any, but the piece would continue with my plan to visit Hillsboro, Mississippi, where my family lived with their slaves. My sisters and cousins want to stand at the crossroads of this little town with a sign, you know, that says, "We are Jewish. We owned our family owned slaves. We're sorry," and we want to do this on the Upper West Side of Manhattan as well, so that we can interact with Jews, and um, we just want to see what people's responses would be and whether they would accept. The apology. <clears throat>
1: okay, so Debbie, you so stay because now you're going to have the conversation. that's okay. really wild. That's a wild. Oh sp- wait! Applause. We're oh. doing yeah. it. So awesome. um,
2: at first, I was I was worried because you were you, the, you know a couple of things that made me a little worried at the beginning. Was that it was a historical story, which is often difficult to do in a personal way, and uh, it seems like a big story uh, when you're talking about this, the whole you know the, uh, Jews in the South, and and that's hard to do because I mean we I try to as much as possible, no matter what this, uh, the topic of the story is, that it's boiled down to a personal story. That you know, if even if it's like a big uh, event or a big uh, story, you have an, you have a, a you know a one character that is sort of your guide through that story. So. Uh, it, would that be you? Yeah.
5: Yeah. I'm a leader.
2: I'm a family leader. And so would the story be uh, your... Would, it, would you sort of... I mean, were you running tape during any of this, this searching you were doing? Were you do? Was there? Have you done any recording already I, on this? I, yeah,
5: I have. I consider it kind of pre-interview type stuff, but uh-huh. um, I've talked to a bunch of my relatives, including these old ladies that have the most wonderful southern accents. Yeah. You know, and um, I, I did find some um, descendants of Jews in Louisiana. They're not part of my family. They're um, people who consider themselves black who look exactly like I do, mm-hmm. who you know were the products of, of this kind of thing. But no, I don't have a lot of tape yet. You know, yeah. This is a proposal to do the right. story. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, because
2: you said you've been working on it for two years. <laughs> I've done a lot of research. That. I got a lot
5: of... There's plenty of Farrakhan tape on <laughs> YouTube.
2: Um, so, I mean, what is, what is this... Like, what do we hear in this story? Like, what is it... You, know, you said the thing at the end where you're going to stand holding the sign. Is that sort of the end of the story? Is that the story? Or um,
5: I think that's the story. The story is, you know, the lead up to that, to us wanting to talk to people about this, wanting to talk to descendants of people in that community who my family enslaved, and talking to people to um, Jews on the well, Jews in New York who would be the kind of people who would think about this kind of thing if you brought it up to them and see what they have to say about it.
2: Because I almost see that more as like a scene, like the open air maybe, mm-hmm. rather than the entire story. I mean, I, I mean, I would really be interested in hearing this history through your eyes as you were doing this search. Like that's the story that I would want to hear is that your search process mm-hmm. and your discoveries mm-hmm. and and uh, did you say you ultimately didn't find your...
5: Yeah, you I know. mean, it's that's an interesting story. At one time, we were convinced that there were people to look for. And I mean I could tell you why I came to that conclusion. But yeah, I mean it's a long you know, I was have been involved with this for a long time and every time you get a new document or every time you find a new person with little memories from the family, it affects me. So I see myself as the person who really carries the story. Yeah.
2: And I mean would that would that be interesting to you to do that a story that's sort of about your search? Yeah. It would. Because I mean it could almost be like where you, um, like I said, that you're you're um, standing with a sign. It could be, you know, what is this all about? I mean, which is what people would think when they came upon that on you guys seeing this, and then this would be the backstory, right? I mean, is that, I mean, if is are there the characters and scenes for you to do that kind of a, the story about your search?
5: You're talking about the search, or yeah, about if, the part with the science? The search. The,
2: if we were, to, if, 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 um, if I was, because if I was going to do this, it would probably it would be the search. The
5: the people that I think would be the characters would be my family, some of who are really interested in this and have regrets, and others who just aren't dealing with it. And then um, there are people that, in my research, I have found that people proudly <coughs> put up stuff on Ancestry about how. Their family was from South Carolina, they were Jews, or their family was from Arkansas, and they were Jews, and they did wonderfully, and they have these huge genealogies. But then I look up their last, now I look up their family on Amazon and see that they had lots of slaves. And, you know, they, it's interesting to sort of see how they deal with that, you know, which they kind of don't. I mean, the fear of that and the shame of that, I think, can come out in some, among some characters, or the, just the compl- the con- the confused feelings about it. It's a- yeah. complicated. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, I mean, even the idea of we they had slaves because that's what everybody was doing. Uh, you know, that it seems like that, what they would have said. Now, you know, I don't know if that, you know, but uh, I mean, is there? Have you met anybody who did meet? Who did have slaves and that did meet those? This thing. Um,
5: I met a woman who found out in doing her genealogy that she had Jewish relatives in a tiny town in Louisiana, and she went to that town, and the and the people in the town said, "Oh yeah, you know, go meet these people. They they have Jewish blood." And she went to meet them, and they said, "But you know, most of our family here is actually black." And then it turned out that yes, this was the exact dynamic. From that period, from the antebellum, and so I met those people. I met mm-hmm. the descendants because I just wanted to meet them.
2: Yeah, and, and I have good
5: tape of them actually.
2: And your story, and your and the story in terms of the, the historical aspect of it, like what you know what was going on in this time. Would that mainly come from you, or do you have any ideas how that part of it? Can be uh, told?
5: you know, there are a lot of documents, and there's some pretty nice music. There's sort of old Jewish liturgical music that can be mixed with. Civil War with Confederacy music, and there's tons of documents which have interesting language because mm-hmm. it's 19th century language. But it, mm-hmm. I think it would have to sort of be dramatized, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I, that my you know wanting to do the story would probably hinge on that whether we could figure out a way. And I'm I'm totally happy to talk about that at some point um, if we could figure out a way to make it uh, have it a little, you know, have some more opportunities for scenes and action. That is not just um, you know reading from historical documents or uh, you know uh, people nowadays just sort of reflecting on that on, on the past, which of course is, is important but I probably would want a little bit more of the story of the search a little bit of, the, of a little bit of the detective story about uncovering the details of the story too and then you know and then leading up to that moment of you know standing on the corner of New York.
1: So repitch. No, yeah. so here, so what? So I guess I'm going to say red, yellow, green, yellow, yellow. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. So okay, great. Yay. Um, So, I I just wanted, before we go to the next picture, um, I want to reflect a little bit just on some of the elements of that pitch, because I think it's relevant to everybody here in the room. A lot of times we have stories about our families we think is really interesting, um, could have some kind of historical significance, um, and I'm going to throw this out. Jamie, what do you think makes a story, a personal story, worthwhile for a national show, you know, because a lot of times we're like, you think something is interesting because you were saying, I'm going to throw this back at you. You're like, you want enthusiasm. We're very enthusiastic about our families and, you know, you so many times we mm. want those stories and we think they're important and then they're not important for a national audience. What is it that makes a personal story um, a Resonful national story? Resonate, interest. Yeah. yeah.
4: Um, I mean, it's one of the elements, I think, that we look for in all our stories, which is a kind of universality. I mean, I think whatever it is that you're seeing in that that is um, familial has got to rise above somehow and speak to everybody else. Can you give an example of, like, a recent radio lab? Put me on the spot. I know. Come on. Deliver York. We just did a story. uh, It was ostensibly a ghost story for Halloween. It was about a guy who had... um, after college moved back to his small hometown and to his hometown house to live with his parents. He was, he dropped out of college, wasn't really sure what he wanted to do. He wound up staying there for six, seven years. Over here, his parents complaining that he was never going to leave. Um, and he finally got, uh, mustered up the, the money and the wherewithal to move out. And, uh, just as he was doing so, his parents got sick, first his mom, then his dad, and they both died within about six months. Um, and his dad, as he was dying, really wanted to impart this sort of handiness on his son, um, which he sort of did before he, he died. Um, Dennis, the main character, the, the son, um, stayed in the house after his parents died and fixed it up. He was going to flip it. And that was the plan. Uh, wound up staying in the house and working on it slowly, transforming it for another six, seven years. Um, the whole time, having dreams about his parents really sort of uh, haunted by them um really wanted permission to leave anyway over a couple of years two three people who just came by uh told him that they thought the house was haunted they were hearing things in a very specific spot he thought it was bogus whatever um one of them asked if they could bring in a ghost hunter and he said sure He had nothing to lose um And he recorded it. And it's this really beautiful tape of a guy sitting alone in the dark uh, with flashlights that were set up to channel his parents. um, Having a conversation with his deceased mom and dad about whether or not he had their permission to leave and whether or not they were proud of him. Mm. Um, It's a totally personal story. And when somebody pitched it uh, we were very unsure whether there was something in it that was for us. Um, it's the opposite of science. Uh, and we imagined that people were going to be all over us for buying into this ghost story. But what we found in it, I think, was this larger question about how you move on mm-hmm. um, and what you look for in your parents and how we're all really haunted um, by a whole host of things and how you deal with that. Um,
1: should you make that argument in your pitch, Lita, like if you're doing a personal story, I feel like at, at what point do you do you say this is more than just a personal story here's
3: Well, for instance, I would say there's a lot of things in Debbie's pitch that the nation's haunted by mm. slavery, civil rights, miscegenation, interracial dynamics, uh, confronting the past of your family, denial, um, being honest. Uh, and going back, and I think if you took those big things and you framed it around her individual search, till we got to like the re- excuse me the reveal, you know, and then brought it into the present with your sign or, or what have you, you you could have a, a fairly profound little journey there. <laughs> yeah. So one question
1: I have, so for Bob, so because a lot of these pitches that people are going to write to you guys um, are going to be written, do you start with the universal? Or do you start with a story and then get to the
2: universal? I would rather hear the story first. Okay. Because as, you know, cause she has some incredible themes and big themes and important themes. But, I mean, at the core, you know, we, we need to pull people in with a really gripping story. Mm-hmm. So I would rather hear that first and then hear what it all means. Because um, sometimes that comes up in the doing of the story anyway. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it sort of changes as the, as the show goes on and... And, yeah, so I would I would probably want to hear the, just the nuts and bolts of the story first.
1: Okay, great. All right. So up next we have Ann Noise. Oh, how do you say your full last name? Sorry. Ann Noise. Okay, here we go. Sani. Sanny Ann Noise Sanny. who's going to be pitching Latino USA. Sorry, uh, I'm really bad with the names, incredibly bad That's with okay. the names. That's okay. Nobody,
6: so. nobody gets that name right. Okay. That's all right. Yeah. Me
1: too. So sorry. All right. So let me get my um, handy dandy stopper going. You set. All right. On your marks. Get set. And go. All
6: right. So this is a story uh, about immigration, which in itself is a sort of a transition in place and culture. Um, But it's also a story about another kind of transition that involves your body and gender. And at this point, I would like to introduce the main character, and her name is Chanel International Lopez.
7: At the age of, like, 14, my mother sent me to the Dominican Republic because, you know, I needed to be a little bit more masculine, and, you know, she didn't like the fact that I was feminine. She didn't like how I said hi. She didn't like how I walk. So, you know, she sent me to my father to live over there, which was kind of torture, you know, living with a with what. Nine uncles and aunts who are all old school, machismo, and the women are just as worse as the men. I've always knew I wanted to be a woman since I was five. I mean, since back at the age of five years old, I... Said to myself, like, this is not me. Like, I don't like being a boy. I wasn't happy being a boy. Um, I remember putting on my mother's heels. Uh, my mother used to hit me when she would walk in on me and see me with her heels on. It's not that she don't love me. It's just that she doesn't understand. I mean, she thinks that everybody is a tranny on RuPaul's Drag Race. And that's not the case. Those are men who dress up as women, for show. They're illusionists, you know. So... Those are things that, you know, I have to explain to her. No, Mom, I'm not a drag queen. No, what you see on RuPaul's Drag Race is not what I live my life as.
6: Okay, so that was was a montage of of three clips of Chanel International Lopez. She's a transgender woman uh, in the Bronx. Um, But she started life as a a Dominican boy growing up in East Harlem. And it it wasn't easy for her to to make that transition. She's now well-known Showgirl in gay clubs in New York, and she's also an activist in the LGBT community. Um, and more recently, uh, she has become a mother, um, and her kids, quote-unquote, are young gay men and transgender women, and she sort of adopts them, takes them under her wing, and guides them through their gender transition. Um, And, you know, she does everything from sort of helping them find safe doctors to, you know, administering hormone shots, dating advice, um, and even talking with their families. um, When their families, especially Latino families, are not understanding why their son is becoming a woman, she tries to help them understand and and take away the fear a little bit. Um, Unfortunately... She didn't have anybody like that to help her. And, um, so at, at this point in her life, uh, she hasn't seen her father since she was 16, which is when she left the Dominican Republic. Um, and he, he won't talk to her since she started her transition. Um, and she tries to sort of have a relationship with her mom, but as you can hear in that clip, you know they don't really understand uh, each other. But what she has done is she's created uh, her own family she calls it her extended family her gay family and uh she's helped a younger generation of transgender uh men and women of color create a family and find acceptance as well um so i think it it's a um sort of feel good story sort of and it it's also i think important to see transgender people in stories that you know aren't about violence or Discrimination or poverty or sex workers. So, you know, really, I think this is a story about a Latina mom and her kids.
1: Great. Thank you.
3: I like it. (laughs) Um, We have done stories that have been similar. In the past, we've done stories about transgendered immigrant women who have engaged in pumping, which is to enhance your breasts and your butt and all the things that...
6: I saw that story, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. And, and how it's very dangerous. Um, yep. Uh, and that was... Latino USA um, is structured around shows with particular themes, and that, was, that theme of that show was the queer show, and that was um, actually produced by an audio smut producer... Um so uh again like the the reason I like it is because part of the mission of Latino USA is not just to cover um culture and news and issues that are uh pertinent to Latinos but to bring in voices that we don't hear from a lot especially in public radio push that envelope uh that people have been talking about um and this is definitely uh, an underreported story, a person that you don't hear a lot about, and I think you're right in the fact that often there's other negative associations um, brought to stories like this when somebody's so far beyond the pale of the, what's considered mainstream. Now, having said all that, um, I could see this story being something that could fit into a theme of home, family creating new identities, that kind of thing. The way I think it would work would be, I guess <laughs> I should be asking you this, but I should ask you, how would you make it work?
6: Right weaving,
3: right, weaving the personal story in with the cultural context that you're talking about, the specific sort of machista thing that you can see in some traditional right. cultures.
6: Well, many of her kids are, are Latina. Um, and so so that would be um, part of it. Like, for instance, um, what I had hoped to do when I was sort of first talking with her this summer was to go to the Puerto Rican Day Parade with her, which is something she loves to do. Is she Puerto Rican? No, she's Dominican, Dominican, but she loves the Puerto Rican Day Parade. Um, (laughs) So so there are ways to bring that in. Um, The other sort of major thing that I thought would be interesting, she's she's a performer, she's a showgirl, and some Mm -hmm. of her children are also performers, so she's sort of a mentor to them professionally in that respect um, and in fact tonight actually one of her children is having a big sort of debutante moment in the West Village and it's sort of her coming out as a performer in that scene so I, I have a friend who's going to be there backstage getting tape uh, as they get ready and you'll hear sort of mother and daughter getting ready and you know a few last words of advice before she goes out on stage and then you'll hear you know the big introduction You know, this is Princess Pierce Continental, that's, that's the daughter. Um, so thing, thing, I guess basically I want to bring in you know the sound of, of their lives um, and then just them sort of reflecting on, on their family and their relationships. How would you combine the micro
3: and the macro, which is what's... I, I, in stories that like are some of my favorites, mm-hmm. you have both of those elements. You have the very intimate and then, then you've got the larger perspective around that. Um, So how would you combine the micro thing, her story, the relationship with her children, um, with the larger perspective in terms of what they had to deal with in terms of the traditional culture and whether minds are changing Mm -hmm. because of people like her and the mentorship that she can provide?
6: Right. Well, what I would love to do, and I don't know if I could get this access, would be... I mean, so she has sort of worked with... The biological mothers of some of her children to help them understand, you know, what is LGBT culture, what is transitioning. It's not that scary. It, I would love to get tape of her with one of those moms because she said it's almost sort of like a co-mom thing, where like mm. eventually the biological mom will be comfortable and will sort of call her up and be like, "Our child is misbehaving. What do we do?" So it it's like you know, I mean, that would be great tape if I could get it. And <coughs> and a lot of these mothers are Latina, so then you would sort of they also have a cultural commonality that maybe helps her to bridge the gap when she's helping these, these parents understand what you know, the decision their children have made to transition.
3: I, I think you'd need that. Mm-hmm. You would need that, and, and uh, you probably would need a male voice in there too, especially mm-hmm. if we're talking about um, transitioning from male to female and the machista culture coming, you know, being more visible among mm-hmm. men you, you might want to look for a dad, too. That would be, mm-hmm. that would be strong. That would be a that's, strong combination. That's a really interesting idea. I
6: hadn't considered that, but I was sort of thinking mom, mom, mother, mother. Woman, yeah. But that's, yeah.
3: Yeah, but, yeah, because the male perspective would be, mm. you know, sort of a, another missing link there.
6: Mm-hmm. I mean, the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: Oh, no, so I was curious. So are you, like, green light, go?
3: I like this story, Um not just because it's unusual and it's people that you don't usually hear from but because it's positive and because it sort of stretches our definition of what it is to be family what it is to be a mentor um, and has the larger thing going on in terms of the culture adjusting to these different identities having said that <laughs> I am not the sole decider as W would say right. So, but I would say pitch <laughs> yeah Right, right so you 're giving Thank it a green light. you are giving I, it. A- I like it. I mean, I can right. hear it. Um, the one thing I would probably want to talk to you more about is what kind of ambi we 're going to get, not just the sto- the personal stories, but um the Puerto Rican Day parade is a nice um you know place to get ambi. any scenes at home if there 's you know f- the family, the parents that you can get the showgirl scene, you know the street, whatever like you can you can make this story. Uh, maybe not even go dry at all. Or if it does go dry, it's for a specific purpose. It's like a, a very poignant moment or something. Yeah. So that's, that's the other piece that I think I'd want to flesh out Great. with you.
1: All right. Well done. <laughs> Oops. Sorry. Um, so, Lita, I totally forgot, and my apologies. I wanted you to say, so just talk about your show and what uh, kind of stories yes. that you guys look for.
3: Well, see, this pitch is a nice segue from mm-hmm. that because... The first thing I would say is um, Latino USA, although it focuses on issues that are uh, relevant to Latinos and and that reflect Latino life and culture, just because there's Latinos in a story does not make it a Latino USA story. It's got to have more in it, which is a nice example of this particular pitch because there was so much more um, in it. And having said that also, um, the show looks for places where the Latino culture intersects with other cultures. Um, For instance, one of my favorite, (laughs) one of my personal favorite stories that I edited is about something called Mambo Nix, and I'm a Rican, so my mom was Puerto Rican, my father was Jewish, and I grew up in New York, and my father was always late, and he liked to dance, and my mother was like, be on time, and so, so much for stereotypes, right? But (laughs) anyway... Um, I love this story because, for instance, it was about how mambo and salsa were this big craze in New York in the 1950s, and the Jews loved it. And the Jews and the blacks and the Puerto Ricans and maybe some whites all danced like at a club, like at the Palladium Club in the 1950s together and, you know, peace, love, and harmony and all that. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) that's one example of a nice story where we're looking at how the Latino culture intersects with other cultures um, we recently did a show on Asian-Latino intersection, and we've got one planned on Afro-Latino. So there's, you know, um, an effort to really, as I said, bring in voices other than what is in the conventional mainstream um, and, and uh, you know, just bring, bring different perspectives in. Um, we do also, just as a caveat, take stories from abroad if there's uh, a strong U.S. connection that Listeners here can relate to. Um, yeah, I think that's all it. Right. Okay, all right. Yeah. So, I, I want to
1: pose again a question to everyone. So, um, how important, so, you know, you asked Bob Debbie if she had already had tape of her kind of doing this journey, and Anne, you know, noted that she was, even though she's here, it sounded like Anne, you were getting tape of this event. Right. Yeah. How, uh, how much tape do you expect people to have before they pitch to you? What do you, what do you recommend?
2: Well, they don't have to have tape, but you know, m- my show is more of a story show than a, than a news show, and so it's, it's, it's almost never the case where someone has a, an idea that's only a concept, and then I say, yeah, go see what story you can find. I mean, mm. usually when someone pitches a story to me, they know what the story is going to be, is already, for the most part. Um, and so even if they don 't have specifically they don 't have the tape, they will know they have a pretty clear idea of what the tape is going to be mm-hmm. uh, so, but when people pitch me and they have tape and especially if it gives me the idea of like what their main character sounds like and how good of a talker they are and that kind of thing it 's very helpful and it gives me you know it's it's if somebody if somebody has an idea and it 's a good idea and then they have some tape and the character's really good it 's probably going to it's probably going to be something I would want to do.
1: Jamie, does tape ever hurt? Like, have you had a situation where somebody's pitched and says, I have all this tape, and then you hear it, and you're like, oh, this story's amazing, and then you hear the tape, and you're like, wow, whoops.
4: No, I can't think of a case where that's happened, but <laughs> okay. that would certainly be a deal-breaker. I mean, if yeah. they had tapes at play, and it just wasn't that interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's probably the wrong time to say this, but we've got, like, a three-part approval process, and we will... Wait, what? Yeah, <laughs> sorry. Um, we take pitches at meetings. The group informally weighs in on the pitches before the group discusses them, and so it's entirely possible that your pitch could weather before it ever makes it to the group discussion. Um, we often greenlight pitches, but then expect that two or three interviews will be done, and people will have listened to the best parts of those interviews and given feedback before we finally greenlight the story, and the story continues past there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the tape has everything to do with how successful the story is going to be, and we can say yes to an idea, but it has everything to do with.
1: Do, do you pay you, people during that process? Like, if you have agreed yeah. to do that, so you pay people during that process. Absolutely. So
2: they're okay. Yeah, I too. I mean, Radio Lab has such a distinctive sound and tone and style that I, how what is how does the producer fit in that? Like, you know, how much are they? You know, the outside contributor. Yeah, like that
4: it runs the gamut, and we've been opening up the pitch process more and more to outside contributors and negotiating just that. And I feel like for everybody it's a different conversation. Um, it has to, everything to do with how much they want to be involved, for starters. But if they want to be involved throughout the process, then what I think we're realizing works best is for them to be very present for the interviews, um, for the what we call selecting, so pulling the best bits from those interviews and putting them up for a kind of group appraisal. Um, And then we do what uh, we call storyboarding. We sort of follow a movie model more than a radio model. Um, And we come up with a very rough outline um, that we then break into parts, and we have different producers work on different parts of a single story. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's at that point that the sort of production machinery kicks in, and an outside producer is probably less useful and probably wants to be involved less because that, process is so idiosyncratic to us but the creation of the storyboard we do a simultaneous mood board, another sort of film um, thing we've borrowed Uh, we love the producer to be there and that's where they can bring their kind of reporterly expertise to bear um, and really help us shape this thing that we're really responding to emotionally and roughly.
1: Alright and speaking of outside producers who are pitching to Radio Lab Jake, come on up. All right, Jake Harper. Hi,
4: how are Hi, you? Good, how are
8: you? I'm nervous, but great. Um, so You're going to be fine. Thank you. Thank I'm you. nervous too. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Paul Galani was forced to eject uh, from his plane and come down in enemy territory in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And he was captured and led to an infamous prison known as the Hanoi Hilton. Uh, He was placed in a five by seven foot cell. Um, A bamboo mat covered the window so it was dark uh, and he was kept completely isolated from other prisoners for for several days. The Vietnamese used these uh, isolation tactics to break the will of their prisoners. Uh, If anyone was caught passing notes or talking they were severely beaten or they were placed in shackles and ropes um, as punishment. Um, But a few days into his stay, or several days into his stay there, uh, Paul Galani found out that the prisoners weren't totally helpless against uh, these tactics. Um, and just a quick note about my tape, it's it's phone tape from a pre-interview, but it, so it's pretty low quality, but. Do you want to play that? Yeah, that okay. one, please.
1: And
9: TR is, uh, uh, UR, it'd be, Uh, thanks.
8: So uh, what you just heard was the tap code. Um, if you imagine a 555 five, five grid uh, with one letter per square, excluding the letter K, prisoners could use this grid and, and tap out letters and words and senten- sentences to communicate across the, the concrete walls of their cells. Um, so once Galani was able to learn the code and, and use it proficiently, he was transported from uh, this dark reality of his cell and he was plugged into a a vast network of of prisoners across the camp. Uh, They were able to spread messages about pending interrogations so that they could uh, mentally prepare and and strategize about what they would say to the Vietnamese. They were able to keep a roster uh, of all the men that were in the camp so if someone went missing they would know or, or if someone were to be sent home they could give an accurate depiction of, of who was left in the camp. But but most importantly, the code just allowed these guys to talk to one another. They they shared jokes. Uh, they wrote poems using the code. Um, and they shared stories. And they even uh, eventually figured out a way to improvise laughter by sort of uh, scratching on the wall. Um, and uh, by doing this, it, it, it allowed them to get through some pretty tough... Uh, some pretty tough times, and if you could play a cut too. And uh, the only thing they played that in English on the RPA system was
9: uh, anti-American propaganda, all anti-war stuff, and to keep away from that, we just, after it's all over, we you know, to uh, tap a big Bravo Sierra to BS to the uh, guys next door, and, uh, and you know, it pumps you up a little bit just doing that. I mean, if you lose communication, you know, that causes all kinds of problems, because you just feel like you're all by yourself. And then uh, and they had several people who just went off the deep end and ended up cooperating, and, and it was really a bad scene. So that's really what kept us going. It was it was life bread. That's the one thing they tried to stop, and they never could.
1: So, Jimmy, so what would make this, like, so let's pretend like that story doesn't exist? We didn't, I okay. should
4: say, we didn't use that story for a recent translation show, mm. um, because it didn't, partly it was about what it was going to sit beside, and we had a bunch of... Um, stories about language and we wanted to get away from that idea Um, literal translation Um, but this has some things that perhaps that doesn't so I open the window of possibility back up again and say it's not a fait accompli that we'll use that story and it it takes this one's place Um, but what I wonder what I've wondered about both is beyond the adapting to incredibly difficult circumstances um what about the communication surprises you? I mean, what surprised me and what made me lean forward after the initial um, hook of the, the knocking was jokes and poems. Like, how do hum- humor is such a complicated thing. To literally knock Anna Karenina is wildly complicated um, and time-consuming, but I'm interested in all the other kinds of communication um, that you can nonetheless convey when you're limited to knocking on the wall. Um, joke seems impossible. Poetry seems even more impossible. And the fact that you would laugh at a joke, um, well, I understand the instinct. I'm not, I, I'd be really curious about someone breaking down what that actually means. Can you laugh harder or less hard? Um, can you laugh at certain nuance and not other nuance? Um, but I'm curious, what about it beyond the knocking surprised you? Um,
8: I mean I think the uh, I didn't realize so the, there, there's a lot of di- I mean this has been reported before not not in depth um, but the thing that I mean I personally I, I guess I just never paid attention to this story and I, I found it in a book in the library basically um, and what I mean the idea that you can form a human connection with someone just through sound and by tapping on a wall, um, I mean that's just insane to me. Um, but it, but it also it it mirrors a lot of things that we see today. People form relationships online, uh, and in a lot of case, I, I mean, depending on how much information you have on your Facebook profile, like it could be just as mysterious that way. In um, in the way that the Sort of the, the tap code was able to replace written notes, which got them in trouble. Um, I don't know. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of things that that interest me about it. it
4: you know. How did they teach each other the language?
8: Uh, so it, it started with a guy named Smitty Harris, uh, and there was some. I think just after about a several months of being isolated, he they were shuffling people around. He got placed in a cell with two people for a couple of days, and he recalled this lesson from one of his flight training schools, That and, and it was unique to him. He, he had hung back after a lesson, and the professor sort of explained this code to him in more detail. Everyone else, I think, had assumed it was Morse code, um, but it actually wasn't. It was this grid system. Mm-hmm. And because he knew that, he was able to teach it to these men, and they thought it would be useful. And then... From then on, they—I mean—they scratched it into walls. That, and Smitty Harris actually told me a story of how he taught it to another man, just by tapping on the wall. He—he mm-hmm. he tapped twenty-six letters for the alphabet, and he eventually—I mean—they started out using just one number per letter of the alphabet, and it, I guess they eventually st- strung enough letters together to get that whole message across.
4: And do you have a sense for how he felt about? The, the language I mean did, did he in some, because did he in some way fall in love with the limitation I'm curious if he had if he developed a relationship with the thing he was reduced to uh,
8: for Smitty Harris I'm not sure I wasn't able to talk to him for, for a super long time um, the I I guess I'm more I read a book by a guy named Gerald Coffey, who was also in this prison with them um, and he he talks about his relationship with the code in in great detail. Um, I can't quote it from memory or anything, but uh, he talks about how, I mean, he talks about the love that he feels for these men, despite the fact that they're communicating in uh, these really broken down sentences that are, I mean, a lot of it's similar to text messaging, uh, what you heard there, but but they, they took it to a step beyond text messaging where you know, I, I mean, it's a lot of military acronyms and things like that. But, um, yeah, they I, they had to develop a relationship with this code because that's what they were doing all day.
4: Yeah. And do you know what happened to it after they left? Did they they all left at once? It sounds like they all got out. Yeah, they all got out.
8: As far as I know, they all got out at once. There were a few that <laughs> left uh, early, which is what made the keeping the roster uh, useful. But um, right. they all got out at once, and now they sort of... They also... Uh, there, there were a few other sort of funny uh, and interesting ways that they would communicate in addition to this code. They they also developed a way it was the same grid system but they, they would use coughs and sneezes to do it instead. Uh, they also had some uh, I guess can I curse? Am I allowed to curse? I, I yeah. think I yes. Guess. uh They, they would they <laughs> would yes. sneeze uh, words like horse shit and rat shit in response to the the, the propaganda stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. So those were some other things they would do. It, but they they also had sort of a, a sign language that mm-hmm. they would use if they did get visual contact. Sorry, so whoa, We I've,
4: have to wrap this conversation up. Yeah. Um, I should say it was a really strong pitch. I mean, the thing that we look for as a baseline is a character, you know, it's the classic story. It's a character going through something and changing emotionally um, and you Delivered that from the jump, so um, my compliments for that. Um, Yeah, and I, you know, it's a strong yellow, yellowy green. Um, (laughs) But for this other thing, we'd have to reckon with.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. So I just want to take um, just two minutes before we open it up to the floor. Um, So one question that I had uh, for everyone on the panel here is that we have the luxury of being able to have this dialogue. You don't have that in a written pitch. You know, what is it that that um, do you ever call people back? like, with this and ask and have that dialogue? And what makes you call them back that the story is, like, that good? I mean, like, how how, how much...
4: Yeah, I mean, we do it all the time. Or there's mm. some element of it that doesn't seem to have been teased out in the way that, ultimately, we tease it out in the meeting, for example, mm. when we all discuss what we're most interested in.
1: Mm. So people should be... Because I've had this before, I think, sometimes, where you've... Uh, Somebody comes back to you and says, hey, you know, we're kind of interested, but what about this? And I feel like that's almost as important, if not more important, than -hmm. the pitch as kind of the answering of of that question.
4: Yeah, and sometimes that's something that you can do in writing or by doing a little more research. And sometimes, like we were saying, it's going and getting tape and seeing if there's something hot in the tape Mm -hmm. that helps answer the question that we all have. Mm-hmm. and makes the worth of itself evident.
1: Okay. Lita, did you want to say anything before I open it up?
3: I, yeah, I do that fairly frequently where I think mm. there's something in there that could be interesting or different or useful. And I like to talk to people um, myself because it helps me see how they think. And also sometimes questions will arise in the course of a conversation that you may not get necessarily in just a written pitch or an email um, uh, conversation So, I find that pretty useful. And um, something I actually do like to do, I I find a lot as an editor, is that people will tell you the gee whiz in in it when you're talking about it, like what is psyching them about this story. And I'll actually take notes and keep that Hmm. and then come back to it when I'm editing it because sometimes, you know, what somebody said, and more, and you know, and this happened too. And you know what else? This thing. And it's the most remarkable thing in the story, and that can be forgotten once you've like put it all together and logged all your tape and you've structured the whole thing. And so I actually will do that. I will take notes from an initial conversation and go back to that when I'm editing the actual piece because sometimes there's initial things in there that are really cool. And I, I don't think you can do that as well without a, a, an oral conversation. So, Bob, did you have anything to add?
2: Uh, no, not so much. It's similar to what mm-hmm. uh, what they were saying, and I, I you know, I, I deal a lot in email. Mm-hmm. Uh, my whole, almost whole process is email. But yeah, I mean, if it's especially if it's going to be somebody who's going to be a part of of the story, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in in you know, especially if they're going to be a character in the story, and I want to get a sense of them, then yeah, talking to them on the phone is definitely.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: And some and a lot of you know, what they were saying, the calling the G whiz mo- moment, you know, because a lot of times when people listen to a story. They aren't even really resp- always responding to the entire story. They're responding often to a moment, that there's always some moment that everybody remembers from a story. And sometimes somebody's pitch will have that moment, but there's something wrong with the rest of the story. And then, yeah, so sometimes, like, I want to save that moment. And then you, 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 know, you may go back, back and forth and figure out, like, how can we make this work, even when, yeah, so similar.
1: Great. So I want to open it up to questions. You can come down to the mic. Look at everybody rushing. I know this is like being recorded. It's like mass amounts of people heading over to the mic right now. It's insane. You guys, be careful. Don't trample over each other. Uh, Say your name. Oh, sorry. Uh, Nellie Gillis. I work for Radio Diaries. Um, But in terms
9: of pitching, how quickly do you guys tend to get back uh, to the pitches? And I think that for a lot of us, if we're pitching new shows that we haven't pitched before... We might have sort of a lofty goal of where we want our story to go, and if they don't take it, we have stories that we want to pitch it to afterwards, but we don't want to pitch it to a show and then sort of say to them, actually, those guys responded, and we'd rather it go there. So um, I sort of do a wave of pitches, and I just don't want to pitch it to the second wave unless I know that I'm going to have no's from the first. So I guess sort of do you get back to everyone, and if so, what's your timeline like?
2: We'll just go that way. I'm ashamed to say that if I like the pitch, if I'm, I'll, I will respond almost immediately. Um, and and I'm like these guys; I have no, I am the only decision maker, uh,
5: <laughs> and
2: uh, so yeah. If I'm excited about something, I will like, I <laughs> will respond within minutes. And if I don't, if I have concerns, I will think about it for a while. And um, and I know that that's a horrible situation to put people into. I know because. Uh, uh, just like you say, you're probably pitching it to a few people, and that was one one of the things I was going to also say in terms of, of of do's and don'ts is the idea of being patient because all the, you know the, all these uh, editors have lots of stuff on their plates to be patient, but also uh, politely insistent. And if you haven't heard from somebody in a couple of days, you know, uh, just check in message is fine uh, as long as you're not obnoxious. Um, but, yeah.
1: Can you, you know, this is interesting. Give me just like a quick example of a not obnoxious check in. Not
2: obnoxious? Like,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just like, oh. hey, like, what would you yeah, say? Just,
2: hi, just checking in, make, uh, you know, wanted to find out if you had a chance to look over my pitch yet. is
1: all, yeah. There you go. We'll write that down. <laughs>
2: okay. And I would just add, I've got three other places that I'd really like to pitch it
4: so if you're not interested that's fine I just need to know
1: oh you so you so it's okay because sometimes I wonder like do you say like hey I'm sending this off or do you think some editors find that offensive
4: I I don't find it offensive I totally understand the situation in which you're trying to make a living and this is your your currency so yeah okay
3: yeah ditto it's not offensive at all I mean and you know, for anybody who was a reporter before they were an, an editor or whatever, you, you get that okay.
0: so, great uh-huh. Hi, my name's Scott, um, I'm a student and um,
1: Hi Scott, Hi, Scott. I, um, <laughs>
0: Over the summer I did a story for NPR's Here and Now about playing the cello and what my producer did when he pitched it was he tied the story to this study about um, it's like some new study about playing music and the brain and so I was wondering how important it is when you pitch a story to tie it to some relevant news.
2: News peg. Uh, for me, not at all, really. Uh, it, it's only a coincidence if mine have a news peg, just because I, I you know, because I work slowly, because you know, with small staff, and my, I, I think of my shows more as uh, evergreen. I try to do my shows sort of to have you know repeat listening value. Uh, so. A lot of times people put a news peg in it when they pitch me stuff, but it doesn't for me, just personally, my, my show specifically, it doesn't have any, really a matter. I mean, unless, you know, unless there's a, a way so that it can be timed that way, like the news peg is six months in the future or something. And, uh, <laughs> but other than that, like, you know, like a few weeks out or something, I, just, I can't do that.
1: Can we just get, because it looks like we've got people up in the mic, can we just get thumbs down, uh, up or down on newspeg, thumbs up? I'm allergic news to newspegs. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll take allergic
3: both. To them. yeah. Let say we'll take both. Okay.
1: All right. So we have allergic on two ends and both in the middle, right? Are you allergic, Bob? You're not allergic. Six months down the road, like you need to be a little bit prescient.
2: It would be cool if it, yeah. if it happened. I mean, it occasionally it's happened, okay. but it's always a coincidence. All right.
6: Got it. Okay. Hi, I'm Allison, and I'm Hi, a freelancer.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, are there any stories that you've been thinking to yourself, gosh, I wish somebody would really
5: pitch us something on this? And conversely, is there anything <laughs> uh-huh. that you've heard that you're like, dear God, never pitch us anything like this ever again? We're so sick of it. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. Subway musicians, <laughs> couch surfing. Um, okay. Nothing's jumping out. Oh come on! That's a
3: lie. Well, the
4: never the never is easy. Oh, the never uh, easy. Okay. I, I don't want a neuroscience study. Um, I <laughs> think I started that way, but uh, no. The, what we're hoping for is surprise. So that obviously yeah. speak for itself.
3: Okay. Yeah. What's the never? I, I'm not a fan of what I call zoo stories. Like, hey, look, there's Latinos living in such and such place or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and with with. With respect, it's it's not as uncommon as you would think. You, you know, um, there has to be more to the story.
2: So. Yeah, and actually, also sometimes there, there's the people that do something crazy just mm. to get to make a story out of it. Like oh, I lived in an, in an aquarium for a month or something. You know, and, and, <laughs> what? and unless, unless totally something unexpected, again ha- again. yeah, yeah, unless something unexpected <laughs> happened while <laughs> you were in the aquarium,
1: uh-huh. yeah. I grew gills. Yeah, so okay, I became Aqua Woman. Would you take that? Yeah. Okay. All right. Another green light for the air getting TS pitch panel. All right.
9: Hey there. Go.
5: Manoush, I'm the host of New Tech City. Hey. Um, on the flip side,
9: I'm starting to do more commissioning, which is why I wanted to sit mm-hmm. and see what you guys are asking. So
5: I have two questions. One of them is not so nice. Um, the first one is, how many commissions do you have on the go, like, in a roster? And then my second question is, has this ever happened that, like, you commissioned something, and the tape is great, but the reporter is just not bringing it. I have never had to do this, but I'm sort of girding myself. Can you say to them, your tape's awesome. Can we work something out that we make a show with it? I know that's mm. weird,
1: and I apologize for you. So for <laughs> it's like not killing, but like we love your tape. Yeah. You...
3: How far, how far are we? well, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's just be real.
9: We're getting <laughs> yeah, real on the I air pitch panel. I have a feeling
3: about that. I feel like it's the editor's job to bring out the, the, the editor doesn't just help the reporter. The editor helps the story and finds the soul of the story. And if you can do that with the reporter, everybody wins. So um, it's, that's not to say that situations like that don't arise, but it's also to say before you get to that point, is it really hopeless? You know, Because most people who, if, if you can gather awesome tape, then you have some sense of having a good story. So me personally, I would probably lean towards working it more before I would say, well, we're just going to take your tape, unless it just doesn't, it's not suited for a feature story. It's just much better as a host, tape, and copy or something for that format. But, but not because the editor should be willing to work to, mm. to make the story happen.
2: Uh, I have twenty stories. I'm currently working on At The one time that's yeah, um, I just counted. Um, and uh, the, w- the way I work is I have varying varying degrees of of, um, uh, of work that I do on the stories. Some you know some are handed to me almost done. That's the rarest. More often than it's there's some degree of people handing me like a you know all the voice tracks edited, and then I you know I turn those into a story. I and also I kind of really lean toward non-narrated stuff. I've definitely told people that you have to take yourself out of it. Um, That some people like they want to they want to be in the story and they have no reason to be in the story. They just want you know it's they found the story and they feel you know they feel passionate about it. So they want to put themselves in as a narrator when they don't need to be. That had that happen. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think I think in general people want their story to be on. And they want to get the work and, and rather, I mean, I think, you know, there's a way to, to gently remove them. You know.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, Jamie, did you do anything? Jamie, don't even in? answer that. We're the <laughs> <most> <laughs> of something anyway. Sorry. Right, yeah, you guys can
2: too, you can
1: talk about <laughs> it on the ninth floor. All right. Yeah. All right.
0: Hey, everybody. Thank you for being here. Um, I'm Daniel Gross. I'm an independent producer. Um, so one of the things that I hear from producer, or from um, organizations I pitch to is that they can hear the story Bob, is, Bob and I have talked about this um, when they're reading the pitch and what I wonder often is how much should I structure the story as I imagine it come playing out because there are times when
1: Oh wait! I just want to clarify because it's something I think I was thinking about So are you yeah. saying like in your written pitch you should say I imagine a three minute blah blah blah
0: Or Not, not no. so specific as like okay. Here's how long it's going to be or, ah. or here's what music I'd use But yeah. um, I mean rarely are, are Final products actually, actually chronological mm-hmm. And so should you say You know the, the story opens With this, this sound and person Or this scene and, and then develop it as that Non-chronological pitch or are we trying to deliberately give something a little bit in the raw in the sense that you want the the person who reads it to be to feel encouraged to shape it themselves? Mm-hmm. So I, I know this is a highly personal – it may change or may be different for all of you, but I wanted to get some thoughts.
2: I mean, I think in the pitch process, it, I think it helps to just be chronological, just to get a sense of the story. And then, and then in the – you know, working with it, then you can kind of work – play with the structure and, and – and, things like that. yeah,
4: mm. Jamie? I would say you want from the pitch the same thing that hopefully the story is going to deliver. So if you can structure the pitch in such a way that I'm hooked from the jump but it isn't chronological, that's fine by me. I mean, that is what I assume will carry over into the, the radio version and chronology doesn't bother me on the radio. Um, whether I'm interested bothers me on the radio. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. It, it's sometimes useful to know what kind of structure the reporter is thinking about And, you know, actually you can – if I was looking at a pitch, I could say, you know, there's something good in there, but I wouldn't quite structure it that way or let me talk to the reporter about that. So I feel like if you have a clear sense of what you want in the structure, put it in your pitch, but it's not necessary. What's more necessary is the idea and all the things around it that we've been talking about.
4: And it'd also be as transparent with us as hopefully we are with you, which is to say that you don't know exactly, but this, your hunch is that you would do it this way. Um, and we'll do the same when we take you out of your piece.
1: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was super sly. Nice. <laughs> and, and all, right, all right, last question.
2: Wait, wh- who? Well, I was just going to say, and don't, I mean, especially if you're going to give some suggestions, be sort of like, open and collaborative about your suggestions don't make it seem like this is the way it's going to be mm. you know because we want to feel like we can work with you also
1: mm. is that first sentence the most important sentence in a pitch if people should they really like the first two sentences like the hook
4: no i mean no? i'm actually okay. i'm more interested yeah. that people have thought through what the sort of emotional heart of it is mm. um, yeah. than that they have a ripping good first sentence and then so you're more
1: attracted to the story rather than clever writing
4: Yeah, very much so. And and people come and pitch us in person, um, and it is often wildly different. Mm. I mean, they're not producing an essay. Mm -hmm. They're producing a radio piece, and so I want them to thought it through, and that might come out vocally or might come out uh, in the written word. Okay, great. Last question.
9: Hi, I'm Emily. Um, Hi, hi. Emily. Hi. (laughs) I cover the oil boom in North Dakota for Inside Energy, which is a multimedia journalism collaborative. And I'm sure some of us have had the experience of pitching a show, being rejected, and then seeing a story very similar to ours air by someone on staff at some point in the future. As freelancers, should we be uh, afraid that if we get rejected, something like that could happen? And advice for for, uh, freelancers if you feel like that's happened to you.
1: Hmm. Everybody's now looking at me. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah.
3: (laughs) At Latino Say, we will pay an idea fee. If that's the case, yeah. It's not a lot. It's 75 bucks, but it's a a way of showing respect for thank you. You know, we would like to use this. What if
4: two years down the road you hear a version that's much, much better and you want to run with that one? But she brought it up first.
3: Um, Two years down the road?
4: Is that what you're referring to?
9: I guess I'm saying, like, if I pitch something. Um, I don't know about the time frame. Like I don't know when your idea expires, you know, and it's a fair game. Yeah. But it's more, I guess, it, so it would be like, let's say within the next year or so, um, if you feel like, hey, that was my story, that was my angle, and this show that I pitched
4: really hard. I've never run into a situation where someone's Mm -hmm. come to us and said I think you just did my story. Right. Um, I don't think that's ever happened. And I'm a big believer in, you know, kryptonesia. I think there are ideas out there.
2: If it's the same story, the same angle, the same, because I can imagine that somebody pitching something a year later that's similar but it just kind of strikes me more, but if it was literally the same you know, the same you know that's similar. I, I, yeah, that's. I, I can't imagine that happening.
9: But it sounds like the finders fee idea. I mean, is that something that your other you guys do if you like the idea, but want to do it yourselves?
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you know, part of it too is that a show needs a reputation that they deal well with people, and that's part of it too. It's it's the right thing to do, and it's also a pragmatic thing to do, and because you want good ideas to keep coming, so. <laughs> All right, so here so
1: we have come to the end, but I have one final thing. How often do your pitch sessions happen? like are they weekly? how yeah, how often do they happen? when do they happen? so when should people when should people pitch you on a Monday on a Tuesday? Hmm. the fifteenth uh, of the month when
4: Ours are every Friday from eleven thirty to one, so Thursday night we put things in the pitch dock, gives people a chance to look at them. think about them,
3: okay. Latino say it's uh, Friday afternoons, and we try our best to get back to people early the following week, or at least within the week. I am not the person to pitch to. Mm. (laughs) The the pitch address is pitches at futuromediagroup.org, and Mm. if I have cards and stuff, I can give people if they want. Yeah, and so
1: then we'll. Yeah, mine is almost
2: exclusively email. uh, So if people. Email me all the time. It's just unfictional at kcrw.org.
1: When is your pitch meeting with yourself? <laughs>
2: <laughs> all the time. Okay. <laughs>
1: all right, Jamie, so where should people pitch to if they're sending you pitches? Pitch to me. Okay.
4: Uh. Uh, sorry, jyork at wnyc.org.
1: Okay, great. Well, all right, everybody, go forth. <clears throat> Thanks.